Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, May 6th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story is a commercial real estate report. Former home of landscape firm fits needs of LifeServe by Kathy A. Bolton. Weeks of meetings, site visits, and more meetings took place before LifeServe Blood Center's board and executive team found the right location on which to build the nonprofit's new headquarters. Each property the group considered over a several-month period met one or two criteria for a site for a new headquarters, but none met all of them, said Matt Brown, president of Formation Group, a West Des Moines-based building consultant business working with LifeServe. It wasn't until Stacy Syme, LifeServe's president and CEO, drove by vacant property along Merle Hay Road in Johnston that the right fit for the organization was found. Stacy drove by a site that used to be Herd Gardens back in the day and called me and said, what about this one? said Brown, a former Johnston City Councilman who was familiar with the property on the northeast corner of Merle Hay Road and Johnston Drive. I thought to myself, oh, that's a tough one. The site is unique because of its abundance and variety of mature trees, some of which are not native to Iowa. But the uniqueness also makes the site challenging to develop a likely reason why it was not redeveloped after Herd Gardens moved to West Des Moines in the early 2000s, Brown said. Because the site had been a greenhouse, trees that don't get sold get planted, so there's all these unique trees that you don't want to cut down, which means trying to fit a building around them, Brown said. Syme continued advocating for the 6.1-acre parcel that met the criteria for a new location for the Blood Center's headquarters because it is located in the northwest section of Polk County, close to where employees and volunteers live, visible to travelers along Merle Hay Road, near Interstate Highway 80, making access easy for semi-trailers delivering equipment, as well as blood donors, patients, volunteers, and employees, adjacent to trails for employees and others to use, close to restaurants and other amenities, and filled with ample green space that's available to develop into a garden, honoring donors and others. A team of architects and others determined whether a building that fit both current and future needs of the blood center could be built on the site with minimal disturbance to the trees. Once the decision was made that this was the site, we haven't looked back, Brown said. The uniqueness of the site has really fit with LifeServe. In 2002, LifeServe Blood Center moved into a former bank building in Des Moines' East Village, located between the Des Moines River and the Iowa State Capitol. At the time, the area was just beginning its transformation into a bustling district filled with retail shops, restaurants, hotels, offices, and residences. The center's property at 431 East Locust Street occupies nearly a full square block between East 4th and East 5th Streets and East Locust and East Walnut Streets. Beachwood Lounge is located in a century-plus-old building located on a sliver of land at 416 East Walnut Street. 
The three-story building includes administrative offices, laboratory and storage areas, and the donor center. Every bit of supplies that we get in this facility come into our garage and have to go up an elevator to the second floor just to come back down to basically go back out across a large geographic footprint, Syme said. Over time, we've realized that those inefficiencies are just causing us so many problems. Semi-trailer trucks carrying large pieces of equipment, containers with blood bags and other supplies, regularly drive into the East Village, a pedestrian-friendly neighborhood. In addition, three bloodmobile buses regularly come and go from the center's parking lot. In recent years, as more development occurred in the East Village, it became increasingly apparent the blood center wasn't a good fit for the area, Syme said. Discussions about moving to a new site began before the start of the pandemic. The discussions were shelved for several months while navigating the world health crisis. Talk of relocating resurfaced in early 2021 as the organization continued outgrowing its site, she said. Future growth involving increased work with cancer patients meant the need for more laboratory space and additional patient rooms. Office space for employees was obsolete. The time had come to begin planning for the future, she said. We had a good sense of what our future workforce as it related to offices would look like, Syme said. We were starting to get a better picture on what some of the things we were going to do with our laboratory. In early 2021, the Blood Center's executive staff and board began exploring whether to remodel the existing building or move. It became quickly apparent that remodeling the current facility would be too costly. Discussions turned to whether to buy an existing building and remodel it or build new, Syme said. At the time, there just wasn't anything that we could affordably remodel and make work, she said. We pretty quickly settled on looking for a piece of land and designing and building new. After the Johnston site was selected, the group hired BNIM Architectural Firm, which has offices in downtown Des Moines, to design the building. Several different building footprints were tried before the group settled on a long, rectangular-shaped, two-story building. The south side fronts Johnston Drive. We've respected those trees that are along Johnston Drive and Merle Hay. We've pulled the building back away from the corner and moved staff parking to the northeast corner of the site so that it's not a dominant feature, she said. Large spans of glass make up the east and south sides of the building. Cantilevers will cover the outside of the windows to help cut down on glare from the sun and heat. Blood donors, patients, volunteers, and other visitors will enter the building from the south. A staff entrance and delivery area is planned on the building's north side, Brown said. The building materials that will be used on the building's exterior haven't yet been decided on because of supply chain-related issues. Once a construction manager is hired, Brown said, quote, we'll be able to better understand material availability and get the right materials at the right price. This isn't let's do it, do or die. It's let's make sure we do what is right. The two-story building will be about 56,000 square feet. 
The donor center, laboratory, and supply area will be on the first floor. The second floor will include executive offices. Development costs are estimated at $20 million. The building's design will allow for future expansions if needed, Symes said. We want to make sure that we're not just planning for a building that meets our needs today, but that it is really thinking about what we could do into the future, Symes said. The center likely will move to its new location in Johnston in spring of 2024. The Blood Center's current property will likely be put on the market in the coming weeks, Symes said. Bill Wright, a senior managing director at CBRE Hubble Commercial, and his team at the West Des Moines Company will be the listing agents, she said. An asking price for the property, which includes nearly 2.5 acres and is valued at $5.7 million, will not be included in the listing. The center likely will move to its new location in Johnston in spring of 2024. We're going to ask potential buyers to put a bid on the property, and we'll consider all of the offers at the same time, Symes said. We've heard lots of ideas from people who are interested in the property. It'll be exciting to see how this site is redeveloped. In a sidebar to this story, Life Serve by the Numbers. In 2010, the Blood Center of Iowa and Siouxland Community Blood Bank, both nonprofit blood centers, merged to become LifeServe Blood Center, which serves Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. The data is for 2021. Number of blood products sent by LifeServe Blood Center to its hospital customers and other blood centers, 161,588. Registered LifeServe donors, 141,348. First-time donors, 10,274. Mobile blood drives held in Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota, 2,415. Blood drive coordinators, 1,867. LifeServe employees, 340. Hospitals in Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota served only by LifeServe, 157. Donor sites in Iowa and South Dakota, 11. A donor site is opening in May in Pella, and another opening in the fall in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Also related, LifeServe Blood Center will continue to have a donor center in downtown Des Moines after it moves its headquarters to Johnston, said Stacy Syme, the group's CEO and president. The group will begin looking for a new site for the downtown donor center in late 2022, she said. It will be somewhere that we have parking access and bus access, she said. Since the pandemic, more people are working from home, prompting LifeServe to open donor centers in areas in or near neighborhoods, Christine Hayes, LifeServe's Vice President of Operations, said. There are still people working downtown, and we want a presence down there for them, Hayes said. You'll see us have a donor center footprint downtown very similar to what we now have in Ankeny or Urbandale or West Des Moines. It just won't be surrounded by corporate headquarters like it is today. 
And another related piece, what was Herd Gardens? The name Herd began being associated with landscaping in 1928 when Clyde Hurd, a horticulture professor from Idaho, opened Hurd Landscape Services on Hickman Road in Des Moines, according to a timeline at rightoutdoorssolutions.com. The company later moved to five acres along Beaver Avenue. In the 1950s, Bill Hurd, Clyde's son, bought 14 acres along Merle Hay Road in Johnston, where he moved the nursery, operating it under the name Hurd Gardens Limited. Bill Hurd was a landscape advisor for the White House grounds under four U.S. presidents, according to the timeline. His specialty was growing lilacs, which he turned into a small mail-order business. The company was purchased in 1991 by Bob and Mary Ann Rennebaum, who continued to operate it as Herd Gardens. In 2001, the business was moved to a 40-acre site near the Raccoon River in West Des Moines. Six years later, Wright Service Corp. purchased Herd Gardens. The landscaping business site in Johnston has not been redeveloped since Herd Gardens left, according to Adam Plaguey, Johnston's economic development manager. Many projects have been conceptualized for the former Herd Gardens property over the years, including car dealerships and light industrial buildings, which would have been a stark contrast to the property's legacy and current tree-covered state, Plaguey wrote in an email. However, LifeServe Blood Center's life-giving mission and redevelopment concept are a wonderful continuation of Herd Gardens' legacy of bringing life to the city, through the many trees and flowers herd gardens cultivated, Plaguey wrote. Many of those trees will continue to grow on the now LifeServe property. LifeServe will also put the property to good use for their own life-giving mission, he said. Now turning to the HR and education section, a guest commentary. Maybe try shaking up your teams with an outsider to inspire innovation. Submitted by Carl Veriger, Associate Professor of Management at Drake University. All good researchers invent questions that we don't yet know the answers to. Then go out and try to find those answers. Recent strategy research about increasing the organizational impact of creativity and innovation gets to the heart of two related questions that are probably always on your mind. Are your teams creatively thinking about how about solving your customers' needs? And are you inspiring your teams to deliver innovative solutions for your customers' problems? In his best-selling book, Range, David Epstein quotes Harvard Business School professor Kareem Lakani. Quote, Big innovation most often happens when an outsider, who may be far away from the surface of the problem, reframes the problem in a way that unlocks the solution, end quote. My previous column in the business record introduced the bias of expertise distance. We're much less likely to support ideas, projects, and investments that lie outside our circle of competence. Sometimes, though, according to a new study by Amit Jain and Will Mitchell in the Strategic Management Journal, The best way to wow our customers 
is by deliberately stepping outside that circle or by shaking up our teams and our own thinking to bring in the new ideas of an outsider. At least since Adam Smith described the efficiency of breaking down a pin factory into 18 distinct steps, businesses have been breaking down work into increasingly specialized employee roles. Grilling burgers is a lot like, say, performing knee surgery in this sense. Given the option, you're more likely to order a cheeseburger from the line cook who spends their whole shift flipping burgers than from a short order cook responsible for the whole menu. Likewise, for your knee, you'd rather have the doctor who specializes all day and every day in knee surgery. A long line of academic research confirms the wisdom of this intuition. The more specialized an employee, the more productive the employee. Line cooks who specialize on the grill tend to make a fast and delicious cheeseburger. Yum. You already know, of course, that delivering creative and innovative solutions for your customers is not quite the same as grilling burgers. Measuring the productivity of a line cook is relatively straightforward. It may be more difficult to think about the creative, innovative impact of your teams. The research by Jane and Mitchell, introduced here, considers this distinction by looking at 48 years of patent data from scientists and their companies in the U.S. biotechnology industry. The final sample for their study, drawn in part from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, is composed of 24,598 scientists within 4,197 organizations who produced a total of 94,716 patents. Your teams probably don't consist of PhDs running around in white lab coats, but your employees are certainly engaged in understanding customer needs and delivering innovative solutions to meet those needs. Not unlike what we would, we would expect from a line cook, the first results from Jane and Mitchell confirm that specialized scientists and teams of specialized scientists are more productive. Both are awarded more patents than less specialized scientists and teams. As an educator at Drake University, I play a role in training the next generation of specialists. I teach the economics of strategy to accounting majors and data analytics majors and finance majors and marketing majors and my PhD from Wash U is over-specialized as well. This increasing degree of specialization, even my own, can have downsides as you have perhaps observed in your own organization. Jane and Mitchell's study shows that ultimately, over time, specialized roles can lead to decreases in productivity. The underlying mechanism of this productivity decline may be related to what social scientists dub coordination challenges. A handful of highly specialized employees won't work all that well together if they can't communicate across their barriers of expertise. Another reason might be what academics call the Einstellung effect. If your employees only know how to use a hammer, every problem they face will look like a nail. 
and the simple absence of task variety may also lead to an eventual decline in productivity. Doing the same thing every day is efficient, but not necessarily inspiring. The most important downside of increased specialization in your organization is that it results in less creative and innovative impact for your customers. In academic research, impact can be measured by the number of times a patent is cited by other scientists' patents, which in turn are cited by other scientists' patents. In your business, impact is more difficult to measure. In your business, impact means developing creative, innovative solutions for your customers. Impact is about wowing the customer, about going beyond satisfying them. Impact is really about asking the questions your customers might ask before they ask them. And that's the underlying spirit of research. That's not to say incrementally productive thinking isn't vital to your company's success. We always need to effectively handle routine customer complaints and to efficiently deliver product and service upgrades. The accumulation of organizational skills and knowledge is invaluable. The more elusive question is, how can we inspire our teams to think beyond the routine and the standard? How can we ourselves think more innovatively? One answer comes from the delightfully titled book by Ozan Veral, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Hold on, you say, aren't rocket scientists super highly specialized? According to Veral, being a rocket scientist isn't about understanding relativity. It's about a way of thinking that embraces uncertainty and unknowns. Rocket scientists don't focus on simple answers. They first seek to ask the challenging questions no one else is yet asking. Barol is worth quoting at length here. Quote, Obviously, answers aren't irrelevant. You must know some answers before you can begin asking the right questions. But the answers simply serve as a launch pad to discovery. They're the beginning, not the end. Be careful if you spend your days finding right answers by following a straight path. End quote. If the solution to your customers' problems is always found along a straight path, they might someday soon not even need what you're selling. The title of Rosabeth Moss Cantor's newest book is Think Outside the Building. Her message is that maybe you can't simply think outside the box anymore. Maybe to deliver creative and innovative impact for your customers, you need to start thinking outside the building. Jane and Mitchell seek to both ask and answer this question. Their research looks at how changes in team composition and how changes in the specialization of roles on teams influence the impact of innovation on those teams. They find that even though changes in team structure slow productivity in the short term, those same changes will result in significantly more impact across the organization. Shaking up the structure of your teams by introducing less specialized employees can lead to higher impact innovations. 
The result is the same for individual team members. Highly specialized scientists produce high-impact innovations when they interact with new, less specialized team members. From these results, I would proffer that highly specialized executives, like you, are more likely to generate creative, high-impact innovations when you are willing to interact with people outside your own specific circle of competence. The best advice for increasing your own and your team's innovative impact comes again from Verrall, the rocket scientist author. Quote, Pick up a magazine or book about a subject you know nothing about. Attend a different industries conference. Surround yourself with people from different professions, backgrounds, and interests. Instead of talking about the weather and repeating other small talk platitudes, ask, what's the most interesting thing you're working on right now? End quote. My summary of Jane and Mitchell for you may be thinking less specialized can sometimes be more impactful. Another thought for human resource executives, take a look at your job postings. Are you only seeking to hire specialists strictly defined for your open positions? Or are you maybe willing to interview the liberal arts major who studied, say, Russian literature? And my final research question to prompt something you're maybe not thinking about. Should you pay for your employees to take classes on baking German breakfast rolls or reading Dostoevsky or really anything at all that inspires them? Pixar pays for these kinds of classes. But Pixar is just a creative company, right? That's my point. So are you. Your customers will pay you for creative and innovative solutions. Maybe think about thinking outside your circle of competence to think about those solutions. An editor's note, Carl Veriger will periodically write for the business record about academic research related to business strategy that leaders should be thinking about. Have an idea you'd like Verager to look into? Email him at C-A-R-L dot V-I-E-R-E-G-G-E-R at drake dot E-D-U. Fodder for this piece came from Specialization as a Double-Edged Sword. The Relationship of Scientist Specialization with R&D Productivity and Impact Following Collaborator Change by Amit Jane and Will Mitchell, published in the Strategic Management Journal 2021. You can find this online at bit.ly forward slash 36 lowercase s as in Sam 2 capital P as in Paul, lowercase p, capital Z. The business record announces an event in its Power Breakfast series. To use your platform or not. Businesses, Community, and Social Impact. 
This event will be held Thursday, May 12th from 7 to 9 a.m. at the Embassy Club downtown. From inclusion to sustainability to political influence, businesses today are expected to focus on much more than profits. This corporate social responsibility discussion will focus on trends that are driving many consumers, recruits, and existing workforce to look at how conscientious a business is. We'll also talk about what goes into the decision to speak up or get involved with issues that may not directly be tied to an organization's line of work. Learn what leaders are doing to focus on a range of issues from climate risks to equity and community involvement. The panelists include Scott Johnson, Tomey Professor in Business, Interim Associate Dean for Research at Iowa State University's Ivy College of Business. Tanner Krauss, CEO of Come and Go. Joe Christine Miles, Director, Principal Foundation and Community Relations. And Eileen Wickstead, Principal at Wickstead & Company. Among the questions with the panel will tackle... How are Des Moines businesses focusing on community impact? How do social issues and sustainability relate to innovation? When should business leaders get involved with politics, and how? And how should business leaders operate in an environment with varying expectations from their communities? Again, this Power Breakfast event will be held Thursday, May 12th from 7 to 9 a.m. at the Embassy Club downtown. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, May 6th, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now turning to Susanna DeBaca's column on leadership. Iowa's Insurance Leaders Transforming the Industry Through Innovation What does it take to transform an industry? That question was central to the conversation at the Global Insurance Symposium, a multi-day conference held recently in Des Moines, which convened insurance professionals from around the world to help envision and prepare for the industry of tomorrow. As an epicenter for insurance, Iowa has a pivotal role to play in defining the future of the industry worldwide, and Iowa's leadership in innovation and insure tech were unmistakable at this event. Iowa's storied history as an insurance leader is evident in the concentration of insurance companies in the state and the contribution of insurance to the state's GDP. There are 212 insurance companies domiciled in Iowa, and we have the second-highest concentration of insurance workers in the U.S. According to a 2020 Bureau of Labor Statistics report and data, four of Iowa's metros rank in the top 15 nationally for insurance workers, with the Des Moines-West Des Moines area boasting the most insurance workers of any metro area in the country, even greater than Hartford, Connecticut. In addition, Iowa is home to not only the symposium, but also the Global Insurance Accelerator and now Broker Tech Ventures. With a large part of the overall insurance ecosystem based here in Iowa, we have a unique opportunity to convene and connect key players and to use our knowledge and resources to drive change. 
True transformation takes visionary leaders and innovation, and we have both in abundance right here in the state's insurance industry. Therefore, one answer to the question of what it takes to transform the insurance industry is this, Iowa's leadership. I asked several Iowa insurance leaders how they are harnessing the power of innovation to transform the industry for the future. Anant Bala, President and CEO, American Equity. Consumers need certainty of financial dignity in an increasingly uncertain world. This is becoming more evident each day. American Equity's leadership team is focused on building an ecosystem of world-class partners. So when a client gets a promise or guarantee from American Equity, there is not just a company, but an entire ecosystem around them. We are investing in the economy, not just as a lender, but also as a business builder and landlord behind real assets like real estate and, over time, new areas like the rebuilding of infrastructure in the U.S. American Equity is building an ecosystem for financial dignity, which is unique in our industry. Dan Houston, Chairman, President, and CEO of Principal Financial Group. As we partner with customers and leverage insights, we have greater opportunities to personalize services that best meet their needs. There's no specific technology, distribution channel, or product alone that will help us transform the industry. Rather, it's the experiences we create and our ability to help customers achieve financial security that will make the difference. It's no secret that financial solutions can be complicated. As an industry, we need to simplify the way we communicate and leverage both digital and human experiences. Scott Jean, President and CEO of EMC Insurance Companies. At EMC Insurance Companies, we know that innovation can lead to enhanced products and services, better processes, engaged employees, and improved top and bottom lines. It's so important we have incorporated innovation into EMC's corporate mission and values statements. Also, we recognize that creating a culture of innovation doesn't happen overnight. It is a long process that requires strategy, collaboration, trust, accountability, and risk. Jeff Russell, President and CEO, Delta Dental of Iowa. Innovation has to be more than a department. It must be integrated into the company's DNA. Delta Dental is embedding innovation into every area of our company through our work with organizations like the Global Insurance Accelerator and deep understanding of our customers' future needs. We are offering products that incentivize members to complete their regular dental and vision preventive exams, as well as plans with personalized benefits that recognize members' unique needs. Innovation is also more than the new shiny object. Innovation is about improving operations and making life easier for all our customers, members, providers, brokers, and employers. Tom Swank, President and CEO, American Enterprise Group. As leaders, we need to encourage employees to think differently, challenge the status quo, 
and empower them to find solutions to get better each day in every way for our customers, distribution partners, each other, and our communities. The journey to becoming an innovative, agile organization is one of triumphs and obstacles, both of which provide important lessons. Traditional organizations are static, relying on what has always worked. Agile organizations not only recognize but embrace the need for change and adapt on an ongoing basis, using the data, knowledge, and experiences gained to become more stable, relevant, efficient, and effective. Terry M. Vaughn, Professional Director of the Emmett J. Vaughn Institute of Risk Management and Insurance at the University of Iowa. The insurance industry plays a critical role in helping individuals, businesses, and society deal with risk. The insurance mechanism makes the costs of risk transparent to society, and through their products, services, and pricing, insurers provide the tools and incentives to address them. They help their customers reduce the impact of unexpected events and manage for an uncertain future. Innovation and technology can enable the industry to serve their customers more efficiently and effectively. At the end of the day, the most important thing is to stay true to the critical role it plays in risk management. And Ellen Willidson, Chief Innovation Officer, Holmes Murphy. We surround ourselves with great people. This includes Holmes Murphy's recent additions of a Chief Analytics Officer and Chief Technology Architect. These additions, along with our other great staff, help bring to life what we hear from the voice of our clients. We stay in front of trends through our leadership of Broker Tech Ventures, an entity Holmes Murphy started three years ago, which has brought together 15 of the top 50 insurance brokers throughout the United States, as well as 14 of the largest carriers, to share insights and propel innovation. Dave Albert's column, The Albert Files. What will AI say? If you don't have enough to worry about with climate change, the pandemic, and war in Eastern Europe, here's one more thing to consider. Artificial intelligence is language aware. Not like Siri or Alexa. This is more like HAL 9000, the computer in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, according to a recent article in the New York Times Magazine by contributing editor Stephen Johnson who wrote that experts are concerned about where language-smart machines will take us. Some scenarios are not comfortable. For example, if you think unchecked social media is harmful and disruptive, imagine what it could be like when we turn the keys over to AI drones that make up the rules and stories as they go. Do machines understand the difference between right and wrong? Can they be programmed to follow a moral code? Whose code will they follow? Those are some of the questions that worry AI experts. And while it can be argued that things are okay for now, who is to say that the entire apple cart won't be upset by some technology tyrant of the future? 
What makes you think some tyrant isn't already at work? Placing malevolent code code deep within the ever-expanding vocabulary of supercomputers that are already language-aware. I realize my rantings sound a bit like Chicken Little. I hope that's all they are and that the sky doesn't fall. But that's not the sense I got when I read Johnson's April 15th article in the online Times magazine. The headline was, AI is mastering language. Should we trust what it says? The article is more than 9,700 words, and I doubt that I can do it justice in my 600 words, but I'll attempt a quick summary. First, the supercomputer featured in the piece is in our backyard. It's one or more of the three Microsoft server farms built in suburban Des Moines in recent years. Although it's unclear which Microsoft facility or facilities are involved, Johnson wrote, quote, The whole system is believed to be one of the most powerful supercomputers on the planet, end quote. This supercomputer, he added, has been involved for several years in, quote, deep learning, end quote, which means it attempts to it attempts to, quote, solve problems through endlessly repeating cycles of trial and error, end quote. Scientists say this large language model, LLM, teaches computers to fill in blanks, much like laptops and cell phones do when they anticipate text and spell out Wednesday when you type W-E-D. Large language models search the internet and bring back answers, much like the voice programs Siri and Alexa, but on an infinitely broader scale. One example Johnson gives is the supercomputer's answer to his prompt, write a paper comparing the music of Brian Eno to a dolphin. The computer responded with full sentences and paragraphs parts of which were, quote, a little ham-handed, Johnson wrote, possibly because the prompt itself is nonsensical, end quote. But to the uninformed, the reply made sense. Like social media, large language models can exaggerate societal biases about race, culture, and history. They can spew conspiratorial misinformation. When asked for health or safety information, they can offer up life-threatening advice, Johnson wrote. That's because the sources the large language models rely on are, quote, the wider web, which continues to be plagued by bias, misinformation, and other toxins, end quote. A group of experts recognized this problem in 2015, and agreed not to release open-source models of their work until they had added some guardrails, which they did in 2020. Some are now hoping for a slow emergence of the next phase of large-language models, but a lot of questions about how governable they will be remain unanswered. Government regulation is one solution, but it only works where there is government agreement, which is something that is lacking in many areas today. So the question remains, 
Now that machines have acquired language, what next? I don't know about you, but I'm not ready for a laptop that sounds like HAL 9000 and says, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. From the Business Records website, Development of Transload Facility on Land in Dallas County Under Consideration by Owners of 230-Acre Tract by Kathy A. Bolton. Owners of about 230 acres wedged between Boonville Road and Raccoon River Drive in Dallas County are exploring development of a transload facility that could serve an adjacent data center, grain cooperative, mining operation, and other businesses, members of a West Des Moines City Council subcommittee learned this week. The site, which is adjacent to West Des Moines' western border, is also large enough to support a manufacturing facility that would have access to the transload operation. Misty Whittern-Lee, whose family has owned the ground for more than 50 years, told the Council's Development and Planning Subcommittee. We have an opportunity here, Lee said. There's people wanting use of a spur that is larger than 20 to 30 acres. Lee, with husband Mark, emphasized the proposed development was in the conceptual stage. They asked whether the city would be interested in annexing the property and zoning it to allow uses that catered to transload and manufacturing facilities. Des Moines Industrial's rail-based transload facility at 200 East 15th Street in Des Moines began operating in February. It is the only U.S. rail-enabled transloading facility that connects to four railroads, BNSF Railway Company, Norfolk Southern Railway, Union Pacific Railway, and the regional Iowa Interstate Railroad. The $25 million project, developed on about 40 acres, includes a recently completed 115,000-square-foot warehouse. Misty Whittern Lee is part of the family that operates the Whittern Group, a 90-year-old Des Moines area company with strong ties to the automated dispensing industry. One of its companies is Fawn Engineering that designs and develops vending machines. Whittern Lee also owns and operates Legacy Materials, located at 35740 Ute Court, south of the site for the proposed transload development. Legacy Materials mines sand, gravel, and aggregate materials that it trucks to customers. The company would likely be a customer of the transload facility, she said. The nearby Heartland Co-op and Microsoft Data Center also are interested in development of a transload facility, Whittern Lee told the subcommittee. The residential development of Napa Valley is located on to the north and west of the proposed development site. Whittern Lee said she has not discussed the proposed development with Napa Valley residents. Jessica Spoden, West Des Moines' assistant city attorney, cautioned the landowners about developing a project that could be conceived as a nuisance. If city officials supported a development that caused an increase in noise, dust, 
odors, or other elements that prevent nearby residents from enjoying their properties, the city could face legal challenges, Spoden said. Protections would likely need to be put in place that limit when trains came and went, where buildings were placed on the property, and the types of manufacturers that would be allowed to locate a facility on the site, she said. We don't want to enhance any sort of nuisance-type elements, Spoden said. No issues were discussed involving the amount of truck traffic a transload facility would generate in the area. Wittern Lee and husband Mark said the proposed facility would differ from the one in Des Moines. That facility is smaller and is basically a warehouse next to a set of tracks, Lee said. This lends itself to opportunities beyond that, not just the warehousing and storage of materials. This is completely different because of its size and magnitude, she said. Council members Renee Hardman and Matt Kinney both said they needed more information before deciding whether to support the proposed development. Issues related to noise, light, and infrastructure to the development need to be addressed, they said. Also, they said they would need assurances that manufacturers that located on the site would not be involved with the use of hazardous or flammable materials. I will certainly keep an open mind, McKinney said. I do want to understand what sort of protections will be put in place to reduce potential nuisance items. Community Foundation announces largest gift ever with $45 million from McComber Estate. The Community Foundation has received its largest gift in its history, $45 million that will create endowments benefiting eight local organizations. The gift by lifelong Des Moines residents Harriet and Locke McComber was announced during the Foundation's annual Celebration Luncheon held at the Community Choice Convention Center in downtown Des Moines on Monday, May 2nd. Locke McComber, who was a retired chairman of the board and president of the former Valley National Bank, died in 1998. Harriet, described in her obituary as a patron of the arts, and who worked for a time at Yonkers Department Store in its promotion department, died in 2020. Because of her planning, $45 million from her estate will be gifted to the foundation to create endowments that will help the BWA Foundation, the Des Moines Arts Center, Des Moines Symphony, Drake Law School, Orchard Place, United Way of Central Iowa, St. Paul's Episcopal Church, and the YMCA of Greater Des Moines. The McComers were actively involved in local organizations throughout their 40 years of marriage. After Locke died, Harriet continued her involvement through volunteering and charitable giving. She also worked with professional advisors to ensure that gifts from her estate would be established in her family's name at the foundation as a way of honoring her husband and the prior generations of the family who called Des Moines home. Christy Naus, Community Foundation President, said Harriet McComer was very intentional in planning for how her estate would be invested to help the community. 
She was so intentional in sharing the history and the reasoning behind the organizations, now said in comments made ahead of the event. Some of them were in honor of her late husband, and she was diligent in fulfilling his intentions. Or, she knew these organizations that meant so much to him and wanted to leave money in support of things he would have wanted. Naus said Harriet McComer would bring pages of handwritten notes documenting her family's history with an organization to meetings and wanted that documented in the funding agreements. She wanted these organizations to know why they were so important, Naus said. There was always some sort of meaningful connection, and she wanted that documented for the long term so that 100 to 150 years from now, they would know why the McComer family supported the organization and know the footprint they had on the organization throughout time. It was not the typical fund agreement experience. There was a lot of work and attention, Naus said. Naus, who got to know Harriet McComer well over the past 20 years, said she was, quote, very non-pretentious, end quote. She was someone you would pass on the street or at the grocery store, and you would have no idea that she held this kind of wealth, Naus said. Leaders of the organizations that will benefit from the endowments expressed gratitude and said the McComer's legacy will live on in the work they do. With this financial support, the Art Center can more fully participate in the art of our time, bringing contemporary art and diverse audiences together through major exhibitions, as well as acquire works of art that have been out of financial reach in the past, said Jeff Fleming, director of the Des Moines Art Center, where Harriet McComer served on the board and was later an honorary trustee. Naus said she hopes the McComer's gift will inspire others to dream big and consider what legacy they want to leave when they're gone. This is an incredible story, but I don't want people to think it's unreachable, she said. Any long-term support like this means so much to our nonprofit sector. I just hope that it does inspire people to think about the legacy they can leave through their estate and their good planning to the community and organizations they love. It just means so much, she said. The gift will increase assets the foundation manages for charitable giving to nearly $900 million. Last year, the foundation awarded nearly $52 million in grants to 2,377 organizations. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, May 6th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. (music) 